today on Against the Grain. Critical therapy is an alternative to traditional psychotherapy that connects structural forces with psychological problems. I'm CS. The Critical Therapy Institute's founder and president, Sylvia Dutkevich, joins me, coming right up. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Systems of oppression and structures of domination are all around us. They affect our lives, including, of course, our inner lives. So should structural forces be a focus of psychotherapy? Should race, gender, class, and so on be considered and analyzed in therapeutic settings? Sylvia Dutkevich strongly feels that they should. She is a psychotherapist and president of the Critical Therapy Institute. Sylvia has a new book out. It's called Critical Therapy, Power and Liberation in Psychotherapy. When Sylvia Dutkevich and I connected recently, I asked what prompted her to come up with this thing, this process called critical therapy. I was really dissatisfied with the limits of traditional psychotherapy. Um, I was dissatisfied with the fact that we don't work with issues around race, class, and gender, that we don't analyze power and power dynamics in relationships, um, and that we don't focus on liberatory practices. Traditional psychotherapy has become, and probably has always been more about accommodating people to structures that are oppressive, rather than asking ourselves, our patients, and asking the world why the world is the way it is and how we could contribute to change it so that we are healthier and more authentic. And why do you feel like therapy ignores power and politics and and perhaps the, the context within which psychological issues and symptoms emerge. Because if therapy were to take into account our, our political realities and the oppressions that we are subjected to every day, it would become revolutionary. And as we know from liberation psychology and from uh, the work of like Martin Barrow, is that psychology has been used by the status quo, by, the pow- by those who are in power to really accommodate people and to ask us, instead of asking ourselves, how can we create a better world? How we can make sure that we live healthier lives? It's really focusing more on our problems, our internalized uh, self-esteem and issues that we have. So instead of thinking, well, maybe it's not just me, maybe it's not just the way my parents brought me up, which of course, sometimes that's part of our psychological makeup and problems, and it is part of the way that we show up in the world, but it's also the political realities, the social structures, the economic structures that influence and affect our well-being. If we were to ask bigger questions of how the, the, those structures impact and hurt us, then we would get to a revolution. Um, and hopefully we will one day. So is therapy and, and specifically critical therapy in your mind about more than a patient trying to uh, come to terms with uh, kind of their own behavior in the sense of uh, changing their behavior on a psychological level such that, you know, they cope better with everyday problems? Well, I think it's it's not an either-or situation. I believe that intrapsychic problems are always intertwined to political realities, meaning that critical therapy is both... Um, a personal analysis of why we do the things we do, how our histories have impacted the way we show up in the world, and also how structural problems such as racism, classism, sexism, and so forth 
interact and affect our mental health. So critical therapy is a liberatory practice in so much as we're focusing on the intrapsyching and intrapersonal problems, but also on the world and how I believe if we learn how to be more authentic in our own lives as individuals, then we can create a better world and be more authentic in the world and create spaces and interactions that are different than what we have learned. And here we go to this issue of power. I think in our society, uh, power is always seen as something bad. Power is always seen as something that we exert over another person. And because of that, power is something that we shy away from talking about it in psychology, in psychotherapy, in everything that we do, even in our romantic relationships. You know, we, we don't want to admit that at some point or another, power shifts. One person has it, then the other person has it, and so forth. So I think critical therapy through the analysis of power offers us individual and social transformations. Can you talk more about what, because you were saying that critical therapy is a liberatory practice, what liberation means for the patient? And I assume, because uh, you also mentioned the term authenticity, that, that liberation has something to do with uh, becoming okay. more authentic? Yes, it's about being an authentic human being, right? We're talking about um, escaping systems of oppression, realizing how our stories are connected and how the powers that be do not allow us to live authentic lives, do not allow us to be present in the moment, um, especially in capitalism and in the world that we're, we're, we're living currently. We're so consumed, right, the pun, right, to consume, right? We want to have more things. We want to buy more things. We want to be successful. We want to uh, conquer the world as opposed to really looking at what makes us happy. What kind of world do we want to live in? What type of person do we want to be? What gives us joy? Um, what gives us community? We're human beings. Human beings always need others in order to thrive. And yet we have moved away from this idea of collaboration, of, of being in community with other people. So politics sounds like it's an important subject matter in critical therapy in the room in which this therapy is taking place. Who introduces the politics and is it is it a matter to some degree of the therapist educating the patient about the political situation, about structures of oppression, about systems that affect this person on the, the social, political, economic, cultural level? Excellent question. Um, I don't think anyone really needs to introduce politics or the political rather, because the political is always present with us. And what we mean by the political is not who you vote for or what party you are a member of, but rather how do issues such as maternity or paternity leave, workers' rights, um, health insurance affect and interact with your well-being. So when you come to therapy, those issues are always already present. I mean, think about even, first of all, how much you pay for therapy. Can you afford it? Do you have insurance? Or when do you schedule therapy? If you are a low-wage worker, there is the precarity of, of work and also the uncertainty of your schedule. I, I, had, I had patients who worked at you know, different um, stores that they wouldn't get their schedule till the end of the week. So to schedule a session, let's say where we're meeting every Wednesday at 7 p.m. would have been impossible because they don't have that luxury. All those things are political and all those things impact the way we show up in the world and our mental health. So they're there. What a critical therapist does is actually questions how the fact that you cannot schedule, you know, your session every week at the same time because you work at this job impacts your mental health and also how that impacts our society and what are the connections between your insecurity, your anxiety, and the fact that you really are not in control of your schedule. And 
it's not it's not educational because I think there's it's always already present the idea of how these structures impact us it's really more think about like feminism and critical consciousness and consciousness raising is really asking questions of how do you think that those external factors impact your mental health now what's really interesting to me is that it's almost like psychology and psychotherapy in particular has done a, a great job trying to separate from that almost defensively, right? So, you know, traditionally, if you're a therapist and you introduce political questions, which are not political, which is like, how come workers cannot have some control and power over their schedule? How come your boss treats you so badly? How come there's the precarity of your, you know, work and your your disposable? And how does that influence and affect the way you feel in the world and the fact that maybe your own parents treated you this way? So it's not an either or, but rather how those things interact together. And yet, in traditional psychotherapy, we have done a great job trying to separate them and to really focus on just the personal. A, a clear example of that is, you know, you lose your job and you come into your therapist's office and you're like, no, I lost my job, you know, again, I have problems and so forth. And, you know, a, a good therapist would ask you, well, how does that feel like? And how do you think this relates to your family history and so forth, which is really a relevant and excellent question. But there has to be a follow-up question, which is equally relevant and important, which is what does it mean that we live in a world that we are so disposable? Or what does it mean that we live in a world and now that you've lost your job, you actually can't even afford therapy perhaps, or can't pay your rent? And what do you think will be the impact on your well-being? Yeah, it sounds almost like you're saying that a political understanding of the world is a prerequisite to a, a healthy mental state, a healthy emotional life. Fair to say? Precisely, yes. I think what's what's sad is is the fact that we sort of understand this. I, I, I think especially in all other fields, if you think of what we teach people in college and you know higher institutions, and yet in clinical therapy, in psychology, we really shy away from that. And I think it's because there is this fear that you indoctrinate your patients, right? Like somehow asking critical questions, somehow asking questions about the world that we live in indoctrinates them. Now, what I believe is that the truth is we don't live, we're not apolitical beings, right? It's not as, as if somehow when you walk into my therapy office, I am this blank slate and I don't have any opinions and, I, and my politics are always already present. My identities, my intersectionalities are always already present. We could ignore them or we could pretend they're not in the room, but that doesn't mean they're not in the room. They're always already there. So I think it's a disservice to not talk about it. And, and, and this is how we go back to this idea of accommodation, because when we don't openly, critically ask questions about the world and the political, quote unquote, then we implicitly align ourselves with the status quo. We implicitly say that it's okay that you work at this job, that you don't have power over your schedule, and you won't know what you're doing next week because that's just the way the world works, and we should all be okay with it. Sylvia Dutkevich is her name. She's a psychotherapist and founder and president of the Critical Therapy Institute, which focuses on teaching, research, and the application of critical therapy in advisory, consulting, and educational services. We are talking about her new book. It's called Critical Therapy, Power and Liberation in Psychotherapy. I'm C.S. Song. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Liberation psychology, you referred to that earlier. And critical pedagogy is something you refer to quite a bit in your book. And what can you say, what should we know um, on a fundamental level about liberation psychology and its focus and critical pedagogy and what it brings to, contributes to the uh, theory and practice of critical therapy? 
So liberation psychology comes from Latin America. And as I mentioned earlier, it actually states how psychology as a science has been used by the powers that be in order to uh, accommodate people to the status quo. Um, instead of asking ourselves, why is the world this way? We tend to say, why am I this way and what's wrong with me? Um, so we use that in the sense of really looking at mental health and well-being in a context of a political of stru political structures um, and in the context of what is liberatory, what is what will lead us to a more authentic life rooted in compassion, community, love, right? And ethics of love, of, of friendship. Um, critical pedagogy comes from Paulo Freire and it's this idea of really teaching people where they're at and meeting them where they're at instead of a banking model where we sort of give you the information, right? You go to school and this is what we do in our, with our educational system currently. You know, kids go to school, we tell them what to memorize, they, you know, give it back to us and you get a good grade and you're a great person. Unfortunately, that model of teaching does not meet people where they're at, does not really develop critical thinking skills, and it's not very innovative. So similar in psychotherapy, People come to therapists who they see as authority figures, as the people or the subject supposed to know, right? And we as therapists are supposed to give you some of the answers, quote unquote, where the truth is our job is really to ask great questions, is not to give you the answers because the answers to your life is really a collaborative process. My job is to learn and teach you how to ask critical questions about your life because ultimately as a patient, you're an expert in your life. And, and if I believe that, right, if I take that, then our um, conversation to borrow from, you know, Paulo Freire is this idea of dialoguing about the world. And, and we could talk a little bit about the stages of critical therapy, but especially in the last stage of critical therapy, it, we get to this point where the patient and the therapist meet to talk about the world and you no longer need therapy because you have all the tools that you need in order to really sort of live your life more authentically. The relationship between patient and therapist is a critical one, of course. And uh, what you are suggesting in this book and in what you're saying is that the power dynamic needs to be maybe thought of or reconceptualized, conceptualized differently than in the, in the traditional um, therapist relationship. Can you talk about the uh, power that the typical therapist has in relation to her patient and what critical therapy tries to do uh, with that power, with that authority, uh, perhaps leaning more toward what you're suggesting, which is a more collaborative pathway? Sure. So the first thing, and you've, you know, people have heard me say this and I keep saying it, if you ever call me for therapy, I will, I will say these words, which is that I believe that therapy is the most intimate relationship you end up having with someone. The reason why I believe that is because you end up telling the person a lot of things about yourself. They get to see very tender parts of yourself. Um, and you get to share a lot of information and vulnerabilities. Now that's from the patient side. But I also believe as a therapist, there are parts of ourselves that we share with our patients. They're also very intimate. So it, it, it is a collaboration. It is two people coming together to witness someone's life, which is your patient's life. Now, power is always already present in therapy. Right? People come to a therapist and you know they often see us as experts in the field and hopefully we are um, and what I mean by experts in the field is that we get to ask critical questions and we get to know stuff about mental health that will help you to come up with the answers that will you know decide what type of life you want to lead so power is always at the core of the therapeutic relationship, but power is at the core of every relationship. I don't believe that we have any relationships where there is no power or power is always shared equally. That's almost impossible. Um, what I think is different 
in, in critical therapy is that we talk about this power dynamic and we analyze it. Um, and we have like three different stages. Um, and these stages are not always, um, you know, linear. Most of the times they are, but sometimes the three stages can happen in one session for some reason. Um, and the first stage of critical therapy is the one that's very traditional um, in the sense of the person who is your patient comes in and invests power in the therapist. So we are the, the person who is in charge, the person who has the answers. And we do this very consciously because we believe that it facilitates the transference needed for psychotherapy to work. Um, it also facilitates the defenses and we, we find out what type of relationships you've had in the past, how you relate to people, how you've related to your parents. Um, you know, and I also have a side note to that, which is if we lived in a more collaborative world where people shared power equally, would we need the stage to look like that? I don't know. We're not there. So I'm going to move on. But it's just an interesting question for me that I've sort of, you know, thought about lately. Um, as, as it came out in one of our classes. But to go back, so the first stage is traditional psychotherapy 101. The therapist is in charge. The therapist has power. The patient comes in, you know, and we develop transference. We look at your defenses. We look at your dream um, analysis and so forth. And before we get to the second stage, can you define transference for us? Sure. Transference is the emotional relationships that we've had with our parents, with our loved ones that we bring to therapy. It's really we invest in the therapist projections of all our other relationships. And usually in therapy in particular, we mimic or we copy or we create a relationship that is problematic. So what I say to people is if you get along with 10 of your friends and you don't get along with your mom, for example, therapy is going to mimic the relationship that you struggle with because we repeat what we don't understand. Meaning that we come to therapy because we struggle with a relationship dynamic and we are going to repeat that relationship pattern in order to understand it. This gives the therapist the opportunity to analyze how you as a patient show up in the world and in the relationship. And it gives us an understanding of your history and how that history impacts your relationships. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Sylvia Dutkevich joins me. She is founder and president of the Critical Therapy Institute which, among other things, provides psychotherapy to individuals, couples, families, and groups. And she's got a new book out called Critical Therapy, Power and Liberation in Psychotherapy. So in the first stage, the way the therapeutic relationship begins, in, in most cases, or maybe in all cases, um, as you were saying, the patient invests power in the therapist. The, what happens in the, in the second stage in terms of power dynamics? So in the second stage, we slowly denounce our power or we, we really are creating through critical consciousness and through critical thinking and questioning of the patient um, and their relationship to power. We open up a space where they try to assert their own power. Now, this is really important because especially if you've been disempowered, and you have very little power in the world, it's important to learn how to claim your power, how to get it back. No one gives you power. That's very paternalistic, right? To assume that somehow I give you power, now we're collaborative, we're equal, this is great. That, that's not real. That's not how the, the real world works and that's not how power works. So it's important for people who have had little power to be able to transform the dynamic and to really claim and come into their own. And if you look at, you know, some of the writings of Manny or Franz Fanon, we're talking about claiming that. We're talking about empowerment that comes from within, of realizing that we are two individuals and maybe our society has given you more power because of the way you look or because of the color of your skin. But ultimately, I need to claim some of my power in this dynamic. Um, 
And that's the second stage, and it's a very important stage, and maybe now you could understand why we do have to introduce the political. We do have to talk about race. We do have to talk about class, because that is a way to really denounce, and it's also a way to make power visible, to really learn how to talk about it, to, to say to your patient, for example, in my case, what does it mean that I am a woman, and what does it mean that you might be a woman of color sitting across from me? What does it mean that I'm a woman and you might be a heterosexual straight man, you know, that's sitting across from me. Um, so all those things are not just tacitly present in the room, but they're actually discussed and talked about. And in this way, we get to practice sharing power and analyzing power dynamics. If and when the patient reclaims their power, what is the philosophy behind that what can the patient do once they have reclaimed power in this it sounds like very necessary way what can they do that they wouldn't have done before or couldn't have done before and how does that differ from uh, let's say a neurotic patient going to traditional psychotherapy and coming to understand their neuroses such that they are freed in a certain sense from them, liberated from them, and therefore can reclaim their power in that way. In traditional therapy, understanding your neuroses and, and claiming some power is important. However, it's almost like half the journey. Um, and here we go to this idea of learning how to share power with another. And not surprising, traditional therapy, just like our society, teaches you how to claim your power and sort of exert it over others. One of my pet peeves about, about therapy was that you go to therapy, you talk to a therapist, you focus on yourself, you, you know, understand why you do the things you do, and then you leave therapy and try to have a relationship with someone and realize you cannot because nowhere else in the world is it just about you. We don't have good models in our society on how to be collaborative. We, we don't have good models of once you've gained your power and once you see yourself as powerful, how do you use that in order to have power with someone rather than have power over someone. So one of the things that's different in, in critical therapy is that as you get to this second stage and you feel your power, with that power comes a responsibility. With that power comes privilege in certain areas. And how do you use that? And then slowly we move into that third stage of critical therapies. How do two people meet to dialogue about the world, meet to really understand and sort of look at some of the problems that you exhibit as a patient, but also what is your responsibility to the world, to yourself, to others in relationships. So therefore, at this last stage, it's not like I'm empowered, now it's all about me, which I've seen in so many traditional models of therapy, um, but rather now I'm empowered, what does that mean and how do I want to show up with others and in relationship to myself and to other people in the world? As you acknowledge in your book, the building of trust is, is key to a um, positive therapeutic relationship and experience. What is involved in building trust in a critical therapy setting? How does the trust element uh, differ or, you know, either the quality of the trust or the process of attaining the trust differ in critical therapy versus um, more traditional therapies? I think we're much more honest about our humanity. Um, I think being able to name our privileges, our identities, the messiness that, that sort of comes into the room makes it a more authentic relationship. You know, what's interesting to me is that we often talk about um, differences or privilege when we are across someone who's different than us, right? So 
If you have two white people in therapy, in traditional therapy, you don't actually discuss race because it's assumed that, you know, we're like the norm over here. We, we're probably on the same side. Where, and I think that's a missed opportunity. It's a missed opportunity to talk about what does your whiteness mean means to you? And how is it different than what it means to me? How does that privilege gives you certain power, right? And how do you use that power? What do you do with it? So I think in being open to not only critically ask questions of our patients, but also critically looking at ourselves, whether it is with our patient in the session when that's relevant, or with ourselves and our supervisors when we're off, you know, it is the ability to also interrogate our assumptions all the time and our, our authentic sort of selves and showing up in therapy in a way that's much more it's humbling, honestly. You know, we we don't we don't claim that we're we're not human beings, right? And 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 I think sometimes it's almost defensively. You know, it, I went to social work school, and you know, we talk a lot about boundaries, right? That as a therapist, you have to have boundaries. But these boundaries, I don't know how much it got co-opted by our like sort of capitalist idea of what it means to be boundaried. Um, or what does it mean to care? What's an ethic of care, right? We, how can we spend countless hours with someone in therapy and not love them? How can we witness these stories of transformation? How can we witness these stories that are sometimes painful, sometimes joyful, and not love our patients? Yet, in our schools, we're told we shouldn't do that. That we should care, but care to a certain degree. Don't bring it home and sort of be there, but, you know, try not to give too much of yourself. And I don't think that's because, you know, social workers are bad people or because our schools are bad. It's because we are defensively, constantly fighting against connection. We are trying to create therapy as something that's you know, like apolitical, clinical, we're only going to do it this way, we're just going to analyze your neuroses and then you go home, rather than going back to talk therapy as a, as a human experience, as a connection, as a witnessing of someone's life. That's the voice of Sylvia Dutkevich, spelled D-U-T-C-H, E-V-I-C-I, and you can find her name spelled on our website, againstofthegrain.org. She is a psychotherapist. She is founder and president of the Critical Therapy Institute, which, as I mentioned, focuses on teaching, research, and the application of critical therapy in advisory, consulting, and educational services. It trains people to become critical therapists, and it also provides psychotherapy to people, to couples, families, and groups. And I came across Sylvia's new book, Critical Therapy, Power and Liberation in Psychotherapy. And I'm CS, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So one very helpful thing about your book is that it has a case study, putting flesh on the bones in terms of putting actual details out there of a patient, in this case, someone you have seen who agreed to have her case described to some extent in this book, is very instructive. So I want to talk about that for a while. Anna is her name, or the name you, you give her in this book. And she grew up in Guinea-Bissau, which is a West African country, and came to the U.S. And um, when she came to you, she presented a situation in which she was in a relationship with a man, and she was not treated very well by this man, and yet she was with him. Share some more about what she told you about uh, this relationship and what meaning it had for her and why she had not terminated it. So she was in a relationship. She was in an abusive relationship. She was a victim of domestic violence. Um, Although she was a highly educated woman, she was actually studying to get her master's, I believe, in economics. Um, there are certain patriarchal values um, that, you know, still get get instilled in us. So he 
was very abusive towards her. He hurt her a lot. She called, at the time when I met her, I was working at a social service agency. She was very distrustful. It took us a while. I talked to her on the phone a couple of times before she, she came into therapy. And then we talked about her relationship. And, and it was very difficult for her to leave him because on some level, she felt a sense of obligation. He helped her, you know, she was, you know, here on a student visa, and he was nice to her, as most abusers are in the beginning. But there was also, and this is how we get back to the political, there was also the fear of, as a, as a woman of color, and she was dating a man who was also a man of color, of what would it mean if she calls, you know, the police on him? Although it would have helped her to get her visa and her status, right? She didn't want to do that, and she didn't do that in the end. It was really interesting how this relationship also mimicked her relationship with her family of origin, but also how, you know, structural institutions teach us dysfunctional relationships. For example, you know, she was a member of the Catholic Church and, you know, when she went to the priest and talked about the abuse, he didn't seem to sort of have a problem with it or really sanction that abuse more or less. So then she felt like, maybe I deserve this or maybe all women, you know, put up with this. Maybe this is what it's like to be in a relationship. Um, and I think that those are questions that women still ask themselves. And, and I say women because, unfortunately, most of the people who experience domestic violence and abuse are women still to this day. And I don't think that's a coincidence because it is tied to our power structures. It is tied to the way we define masculinity, to the way we define power over someone, to the way that women have very little agency sometimes because they lack economic you know, access or they lack, in this case, um, you know, she didn't have a, you know, a visa or anything. So there's so many um, layers to her story. What I like about her stories is, is to really sort of have taken this journey with her and to start from, you know, as a, as a black woman, and you see that in the story, for her at some point to tell me that she grew up believing that white people don't lie. And, and it seems so, you know, wow, people still believe that. And it's not because she wasn't educated. We could dismiss it that way. It's because this is what colonialism does to us, right? And, and you could imagine as a black woman to believe that, to believe that somehow white people are more superior, that they don't lie, that, you know, what that does to your self-esteem and why it's so important to analyze those, those structures and those um, beliefs that get ingrained in us in a way that we're not even aware of. Um, what I do regret about this story, I mean, I, I, love, I love the case presentation. I am so grateful for her to having allowed me to tell her story. Um, but my next story has to be about two people that are similar, right? So we go back to what I was saying in the beginning that we usually talk about differences, right? For example, racial differences give us an opportunity to talk about race. But in my, in my next case example, I would like to, to sort of showcase how do we talk about, for example, race or gender differences with people who are similar, right? How does that look like and how does that inquiry that is so necessary happen in psychotherapy? What did the mutual interrogation of things like racism and colonialism and misogyny and other political matters, what is an example of a revelation or a breakthrough that Anna was able to make as a result of that? Like, she came in talking about her relationship with her boyfriend. She felt abandoned by her father early on. She felt like her mother did not love her in a satisfactory way. Give us an example of what opened up for Anna as a result of thinking more about structural forces and colonialism? A couple of things. I, I mean, she changed in so many ways. And I think that, and, and she was such a great example of how the personal is political and how it's always intertwined. Um, yes, her father did abandon her. And that didn't change somehow as she realized that, you know, how colonialism impacted and influenced her father's ability to parent her or her mother's ability to be present with her. That didn't somehow magically make her parents better. 
it didn't take away their responsibility that they had and did not fulfill towards her but it added an extra layer to how these psychic components and problems and painful uh, histories are also intertwined to political realities the fact that her family was poor. Her parents had very little options, impacted the way that they parent. Now, that's not an excuse, right? Because people would be like, well, you know, it's it's not, it doesn't take away from the intra-psychic pain or the responsibility we have to one another or that parents have towards their children. It just adds the layer of how difficult it is to parent in a place where colonialism doesn't allow you to thrive. Does You don't have enough money to support your family. You also, it shows you how growing up in patriarchal culture, it's believed that, you know, men should have more power than women. So when your boyfriend decides to, you know, kick you, well, that's, that's what you do. You put up with it because you're a woman. And she slowly realized that, you know, women are not inferior to men. Women should be equal to men. It's just that our society doesn't allow them to, to do so. And she also realized that, you know, her long intra-psychic traumas, her interpersonal losses uh, were also tied to political realities. And healing some of that trauma comes from accepting that your parents are human, they've made mistakes, and you know that those mistakes have deeply impacted the way you show up in the world and that you need to heal in order to be able to do something different with other people in your life or with your own children and so forth, but also that their choices were also impacted by their time and space and their access to power. So. In the end, you know, she came to see herself as a black woman that could be powerful, that a black woman that, you know, could be equal and should be equal to, let's say, me as a white woman who is her therapist. And, and we talked about that. We talked about the privileges that I had, but that those privileges were also created by society. I wasn't just smarter than her, right? That's, that's the myth that somehow, you know, I worked hard and I got here because I I'm super hardworking and smart. Sure, I like to believe I'm hardworking. I like to believe I'm smart. And I've also had privilege that has helped me to get to where, where I am. And I think admitting that and making that visible was part of her psychic transformation. My guest is Sylvia Dutkevich, a psychotherapist. Her new book is Critical Therapy, Power and Liberation in Psychotherapy. She is also founder and president of the Critical Therapy Institute. We have a link to the Critical Therapy Institute and to Sylvia's new book on our website, againstthegrain.org. The program is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. A chapter in your book is devoted to the subject of money in psychotherapy. In Critical Therapy, what discussions or decisions are made regarding how much is charged, how much it costs to see a therapist? So, you know, CS, this is so interesting because when I started critical therapy, I thought most people would want to talk about the political and power. And yet I spent a lot of time talking about our sliding scale and about money, which probably I should have thought ahead and probably thought that, yeah, maybe this is a topic that might get people interested or, um, uh, so our sliding scale, or maybe I should start this way. What should one pay for therapy, right? We claim as a society that people should have access to mental health services and good quality services, and yet we don't actually provide those services. Most people who cannot afford therapy either go to different social service agencies or different mental health clinics that get you know, very little care, right? It's all a numbers game. Um, also, insurance companies don't really reimburse um, a living wage for therapists sometimes. So once I decided to, you know, create critical therapy, I wanted to make sure that everyone has access to it. I also wanted to make sure that as a therapist, I don't just see affluent people or I don't just see poor people. I wanted to be able to 
see people from all walks of life. So our sliding scale is unique in the sense that everyone who comes to critical therapy pays the same percentage of their income and resources for the psychotherapeutic hour, meaning that your session could cost $50 or $1,000 or $5,000. So I know theoretically that sounds beautiful and yet viscerally for most people coming in, it's really a difficult conversation because it opens up conversations and questions around how much is therapy worth? How much should a therapist be making? Why do I get to pay more and someone gets to pay less? And so forth. Talk more about what happens when the therapist and patient talk about the issue of money, about the fee charged for therapy. Our model gives you an opportunity as a patient and also as a therapist to really discuss the issue of money, to really discuss privilege, to really talk about your relationship to wealth. And you would be surprised at what comes up, right? Because what I've learned is that our understanding of money, our relationship to capitalism might look a certain way in our head, but it looks very different in our hearts. So theoretically, most people will be like, wow, so the sliding scale is equitable. Everyone pays the same percentage of income and resources. Okay, that works for me. And yet, when you sit across from me and we talk about your fee being, I don't know, $500, all of a sudden, all those emotions, all those values around worth, money, why do I have to pay more, come up. Because, as, as we've learned, ideology is something that is, is so ingrained that it's so much into our subconscious, sometimes our unconscious, that we don't even realize that some of our values that we claim we have, we don't live them because it, it, it takes a lot to live out your politics. You spend some time in your book talking about love and the role love should play in psychotherapy. As you mentioned, a, a lot of iconic psychological thinkers and, and therapists would, would say, well, you know, love doesn't have any a place in a counseling room because that doesn't allow for the necessary distance to have, um, you know, objective observations and objective progress. So what do you say to that? What, what role do you see love playing in critical therapy? Oh, love is central to critical therapy. Yes, there is almost, again, this defense against love. Um, and, and I think it's probably because we haven't learned, and even I think as parents, we don't do a good job at this. We haven't learned how to love someone without having an invested outcome in how they turn out, right? So we usually love people, and, and obviously our society does not give us models of how do we love someone, how do we genuinely care about someone, but we're not invested in how they're going to show up or how they're going to be. We're just simply love them because we spend time together, because we share stories together, because we're two human beings together. So if we divorce romance, so romance is out of the question, and I think a lot of therapists honestly are afraid of love because we've you know, capitalism or, you know, patriarchal, our society in general has co-opted this word love to be so intertwined to, you know, sexuality or romance or exchange where we're, we're transactioning something rather than love as something that exists between human beings, as something that develops over me having witnessed your life and, and, and those places that hurt or gave you joy or made you who you are today. So I think that the cures, you know, Freud said initially that our cure is one cures of love, right? But, you know, then he quickly shied away from that and, and, and sort of became this, um, this therapist that was the blank slate, right? Um, but love is the healing component of therapy. And we need to learn how to be able to love our patients and to invest in them without having a projected outcome of how they're gonna, going to be, but rather learning how to share this journey together. Yeah, and as you point out, many patients come in seeking love, right? They've been deprived of love. They 
they don't know that they're lovable. Well, many, many patients don't actually know what healthy love looks like. I mean, honestly, how many of us have had good role models when it comes to love? How many of us have learned that love doesn't mean being abused? Love doesn't mean being codependent, which means that I'm happy when you're happy. <laughs> Rather than love means a companionship, a regard of, of really witnessing your life. And I think if we practice that in therapy, then we could practice that in the world. So therapy should be a blueprint for all other relationships. We ask people who have been traumatized, who have been hurt, who have had dysfunctional relationships to come to therapy and learn how to have healthy relationships, learn how to love differently. And yet we don't actually do it with them in the session. We just theoretically talk about it. But as we know, and we go back to even the money, you know, conversations, unless you viscerally feel something, unless you actually practice it, you're not going to be good at it. You're not going to take a leap of faith. You're not going to believe that love could look different unless you do it. And what place you should, you know, you should do that type of loving and you should be able to have that type of relationship in therapy because it's a safe relationship. It's a relationship where my responsibility to you as a therapist is to be intentional and to be present and to really show you the possibility of a healthy relationship. Sylvia Dutkevich, again, D-U-T-C-H as in Dutch, E-V-I-C-I, founder and president of the Critical Therapy Institute. Her new book is Critical Therapy, Power and Liberation in Psychotherapy. We have links on againstthegrain.org. The Critical Therapy Institute does provide psychotherapy to individuals, couples, families, and groups. Thanks so much, Sylvia, for your work and for writing this book and for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I have always loved your program and your interviews, and I am deeply honored to be here. And I'm CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. 